Hey everyone, this is Dave Perra, CEO of Spider Oak, with another installment of our ongoing podcast series on the intersection of cybersecurity and space called Zero Trust for Zero Gravity. And as with great pleasure, that I you know, welcome our newest guest, Sam Visner, who I had the pleasure of meeting through a connection at the Small Sat Alliance. I remember one of his colleagues asked a question about, but Yes, the space stuff sounds great, but what are we doing about cyber? And I said, finally, someone I can talk to because as you know, guests and frequent listeners of the podcast know, we're always on the hunt for folks that have something unique or interesting to say on the topic of space cyber. And when I finally got the opportunity to meet Sam, I, it was like another, a brother from another mother. We finally found someone on that 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 journey. And I've had many wonderful discussions with Sam and want to welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you give a, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your background, which is all over the place, by the way. Yes, I guess that's true. I think my my late mother of, of, of blessed memory was concerned rightly that I would never be able to hold a job. And I think she was, uh, I think she was right. Um, I spent the earlier part of after after going to University at Georgetown, I spent the earlier part of my career as an intelligence officer, largely overseas, came back, joined the private sector, took a master's degree in telecom, um, was working in the private sector, teaching as an adjunct at Georgetown. And then all of a sudden in 2001, I found myself back in government at the National Security Agency as chief of signals intelligence programs. Did that for about two and a half years, coinciding with 9/11, giving you a sense of my of my of my perfect timing in life. Went back out into the private sector, ran a couple of cybersecurity businesses, became an adjunct uh, again at Georgetown, teaching cybersecurity policy, operations, and technology. Served on a few boards, and now I am uh, a tech fellow at 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 the Mitre Corporation, and served as director of the. National Cybersecurity Federally Funded Research and Development Center. And perhaps just as exciting, I've been elected as vice chair. just federal and just commercial, but the intersection of the two to providing secure, trusted comms over the, what I like to call the great zero trust infrastructure of our space networks. And just wanted to really dive into that topic in terms of what do you think about zero trust and that intersection of federal and commercial? Um. Well, Dave, I've been in Washington a long time, so I know a great trick, and it's called thanking the person who's asked you the question for their excellent question, 
going off and answering the question you intended to answer anyway, and then going back and thanking them again for asking that question. It's a skill. Let me thank you for that question. And I am going to answer it, but I want to preface it with something. And that is that um, I don't see that large a distinction at this point between our government and our commercial space systems. And here's the reason that I don't. If you're an adversary and you want to hurt this country, you take a look at what would hurt us and you say, well, the United States security is both economic and national security. And if I can hurt their national security or their economic security, I'm still hurting their national security. If you take a look at the nations at our national critical functions, that list maintained at the Department of Homeland Security, all of them depend on space systems. And increasingly, if you take a look at how space systems are being used, both government and commercial, for communications under wartime, uh, under war, under wartime situation, which is happening right now with SpaceX, or the use of commercial imagery as a source of intelligence, you know, what really is the difference in terms of our national interests between our commercial and our government space systems? And increasingly, although they may have been built and operated by different people, they are all part of the same complex of things that we call national security and economic security. And that leads me to your question, and that is the security of all these systems. The security of all these systems is absolutely vital. Now, as we move to a proliferation, particularly of low Earth orbiting satellites, where we now have somewhat over 4,000 coming up on 5,000 satellites, where SpaceX is talking about 12,000 and eventually 40,000 satellites and over 7,000 satellites for Blue Origin and their Kuiper constellation and other mega constellations being put up there, Planet Labs having up something like 200 imagers and Maxar with an impressive capability it seems that we cannot defer the question of securing these of, of securing these infrastructures since both our industry and our national security will depend on them how are we going to get this done these are going to be systems that have very very broad attack surfaces lots of people are going to have access to them and saying that well once you have access to the network you're trusted to have access to every resource in the network is probably not the smartest thing to do. That's where zero trust comes in. Zero trust, and I'm sure most of our listeners know, mean that we have to mediate access for every user to every resource individually. Now, there are a number of techniques for doing that, including machine learning and artificial intelligence to make the process more, uh, more efficient. But given the enormous attack surface that these complex networks are going to have, 12,000 satellites connected to a global cloud environment, connected to billions of IoT devices, it makes sense to secure these infrastructures using zero trust. And that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in the application of this kind of architecture to the cybersecurity challenge of space systems, Dave. Well, you've hit on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, um, how to implement zero trust in an industry that thinks it's already secure because they have type one encryptors. And I spent a lot of time having to explain uh, I'm not anti-type one encryptor. I love, to, I, I love me an encryptor. But that we're talking about securing each link of the chain when you really need to think about securing access to each resource end to end. I use the analogy of, yes, your armored vehicle bringing the cash to the bank is secure. 
but the bank itself is secure. But for a period of time, you have sacks of cash in the street. This is a problem, but I feel like that's the current state of cyber in space. So talk to us like your view. Where where do you think our posture is now and how much are you getting pulled in the direction of supporting the industry where it wants to go versus pushing them in that direction? So, you know, it, it's interesting that you asked the question in that way. Um, first, I would say industry wants to do the right thing. I mean, I'm I'm vice chair of the board of directors of the Space ISAC, and I would encourage people on the uh, on, on this call to look up the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center in ISAC, and you'll see that it really is an industry-led uh, organization. And we have many of the leading companies in the space industry are part of it. And, you know, we look at this cybersecurity challenge, you know, well beyond what's going to happen with the Type 1 encryptor. There are the command and control systems, you know, the 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 you know the TTNC systems that you know manage these satellites, that manage these platforms. There are the systems that manage the ground stations, and there's been ransomware attacks against them. There are the systems associated with the payloads themselves. And oh, by the way, there is the there is the supply chain issue of the hardware and software associated with these systems. All of that needs to be secured. If you take a look at what's happening with SBOM, right, with the software bill of materials movement, it's designed to secure the software supply chain. Well, can you tell me of an industry that's more software dependent, you know, than, than, than the space industry? Think about what it takes to launch a rocket or even more interesting, to land that rocket on a platform at sea so that it can be reused. This is a highly software intensive environment. So it's the security of the command and control and the TTNC, it's the security of the payload systems, it's the security of the ground stations and the ground systems, and it's the security of the hardware and the software supply lines, uh, uh, supply bases. The Space ISAC, by the way, has both uh, you know, an, an, you know, an analyst working group and, uh, and an information sharing working group are Watch Center, when it stood up later this year, will look at everything from RF interference to space weather to uh, telemetry data um, to to unclassified threat data. It's going to look at all of that. But we've also stood up a supply chain risk management group to help our members achieve better visibility into their supply chain so that they can secure it, particularly on the software side. So, you know, I think, as you said, it's a much broader question. You know, it's it's not just the money is secure in the bank vault, right? You know, who's going to use that money? How are they going to use it? Is somebody going to get control of that money, you know, or control of the account that that money secures? That would be an issue. The money is collateral uh, for some for some transaction. How secure is the transaction for which the money is collateral? A exactly. crude, but maybe useful analogy. No, it, it, uh, by the way, the two most frequent uh, vectors for the attack surface, if you will, for a bank is money on the street and the person driving the truck, <laughs> you know, because they have the freaking key to the truck, right? That's right. And that, 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 by the way, even in, in zero trust, making sure that you have a zero trust architecture so that whatever channel you are using to mediate access, that channel is also secure. You know, the, the thing about cybersecurity is people throw terms around like, well, we've got this. We've got this covered. 
make sure that, you know, when you choose a partner, that the partner really understands, you know, all the aspects to security associated with the architecture that they're that they're that they're peddling. This is not, you know, this is something that actually requires uh, due diligence. This is not just I've outsourced this problem and so somebody else is responsible. Um, if something goes wrong, it's still your business that gets hurt, and it's still your your stakeholders who will hold you responsible. So, yeah, you know the you know the fact that you've you 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 know that you've got a truck driver doesn't leave you of relieve you of responsibility for doing a good background check, or in this case, if you have a zero trust architecture for understanding the security of the process by which access is mediated. You know, for us at uh, Spider Oak. You know, we've talked a lot about this. We use a distributed ledger tech to do decentralized key management so that you have true end-to-end storage and movement of info. So really big into the end-to-end aspects of Zero Trust, which is not everything. Zero Trust is now one technology or even practice, as you know. But I find it interesting when we're talking like with ground station companies, they're like, we're trying to break into the U.S. market. We want to sell to the federal government. We want to show that we can be trusted, that we hire good people, that we secure our ground stations. And I just say, why don't you just prove you don't have to be trusted? Why would the ground station need to know what anything is happening on the satellite? or certainly not everything that's happening on the satellite. We really have to move away from this. We're good people, hire good people. We secure things too. We can't hire always good people and always secure things. So now what? But moving that discussion forward has proven really challenging. I mean, the old ways of securing things still very prevalent in the space industry, at least. Oh, oh sure, David. Look, 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 this isn't a question of blame. Let's let's think about where the space industry originated. It originated in the public sector with a small number of launchers, a small number of platforms that got launched. You know, and each one was bespoke, right? Each one was custom made, you know, with its own team. Take a look at the teams that are operating around, for example, you know, our Mars rover, which you know, is is among the most marvelous pieces of engineering to land a rover on Mars, have it go and dig up samples, prepare samples for mission for sample return. And oh, by the way, fly a little helicopter around the surface of Mars. That's fantastic. But the team of people associated with doing it and the systems are all dedicated. Some of those are people who have been on these programs for decades and the systems associated with it are unique to that system. That's where we were. You know, there's an old and maybe apocryphal story about NASA, which talked about the supply chain. I'm putting this part into my booster. Okay, where did you get this part? All right, tell me about the factory that made that part. Well, that factory gets this bolt. Where's this bolt made? Show me the factory that makes this bolt. Well, it's made in this factory. Uh-huh, where'd they get the steel? What's the com- where's, What's the steel mill that made the steel? All right, let me go there. All right, you guys got the steel. What is the the mine from which the iron ore was mined, which went into the steel, which went into this bolt, which went into this part, which went into this booster? That's a kind of, of, you know, it may be apocryphal, but that gives you the sense of the dedication of resources associated with these sort of, you know, purpose-built systems. Now, Now we're trying to build space essentially as a commodity. 
for communication, certainly, but remote sensing and for GPS and for observation and for travel and for perhaps mining and manufacturing in space. All of this is happening or or coming. In fact, the first entirely commercial uh, crew um, is about to be, you know, visiting the space station is about to come back, uh, I think, uh, today or, or this week, if memory serves. So, you know, this is, we need a shift in our thinking from how to secure, you know, an entirely dedicated system to secure systems that are used by thousands, eventually millions of people that are based essentially on commodity hardware and software, and that are going to have commodity use, you know, buying your, you know, buying ground station as a service, for example. So that's going to require a change in our thinking. We can't secure these things the way we used to, because the way we used to was a few systems, each of which was purpose-built, as opposed to many systems, which are serving many users and many purposes, you know, essentially on a commodity basis. That represents a change in the environment to which we have to adapt our thinking. So, so in your numerous roles, and not limited to the work that you do at MITRE, you're advising, I'm assuming helping to direct this future, and two things that have, you know, as a small company navigating the defense and intelligence space, always fun and challenging and interesting, by the way, uh, two things that we keep noticing, you know, is space considered critical infrastructure? We saw all those, you know, executive orders coming out on zero trust, which was great. But then when we look at those orders as how they align to space, the questions come up as is space critical infrastructure, not just spiritually, but actually, and what would that mean if it were? And two, when will those zero trust requirements be feeding into the solicitations because money talks. And so when these agencies continue to put out, you know, initiatives that, Hey, I want a constellation and make it secure while you're at it somehow. It sends a message to everyone bidding on these things. Like, well, I guess cybersecurity is like 12th on the list. So let's not put anything in the, to lower the P win on this one. So we're still seems to be fighting a really uphill battle. So I'm asking the question in terms of, Space is critical infrastructure and requirements. How are we going to get zero trust into those requirements for the new initiatives? Yeah. Um, so let me unpack that question. Uh, first, sort of the last point first. I don't know when these requirements actually will show up in, in, in you know, federal acquisition regulations of the defense federal acquisition regulations. I just don't know. Um, I do know that, you know, over time, we're seeing requirements in the defense industrial base for better cybersecurity writ large. That's showing up in things like um, the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, and the requirement to use NIST 800-171, which doesn't answer your question, but it does say that over time, these requirements are showing up at least for you know sensitive but unclassified information in the in the defense industrial base writ large having a declaration so first in my mind and i think for most people space systems are critical whether or not it gets a critical infrastructure designation or is considered to be one of the 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 systematically important critical infrastructures the new term that some people are using I don't know, but I think most most of us agree that space systems are critical. 
a mapping of the 55 national critical functions list at DHS shows that everything on that list depends on space. There's even talk, and I would call this apocryphal information as opposed to empirical data, that the loss of our space systems on which we depend for, you know, for food, we'd lose some 20% of our food supply. We use it to move tractor, you know, GPS to move tractors around the field, to move trucks to the store, to communicate, remote sensing to even figure out, you know, where we're going to plant. We call this field today um, uh, precision agriculture. A designation would put, you know, in place a sector risk management agency, which would be responsible for coordinating requirement policy and eventually requirements, um, could bring federal research and development dollars into this, um, could begin to drive uh, requirements, at least for federal acquisition. That I think would be useful. And it's also a signal to ourselves and to other countries, very important right now, that we have made a formal designation that our space systems are critical to our national and economic security, and we will defend them as such. That I think would happen. If this will happen, I don't know. Something I think in this regard is likely. What I would say is that you know what 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 will take a longer period of time is the translation of of such a designation into requirements into requests for proposal. On the other hand, there's an increasing Dave, there's an increasing recognition that these systems, even commercial systems, are important. And that government systems, you know, can no longer all be one-offs and bespoke, and some are going to be shared with industry or built by industry. Or in the cases of companies like Planet Labs and Maxar, are commercial companies whose products are being sold to the government. So it wouldn't surprise me if following such a such a designation, you know, we tried to get some low-hanging fruit by putting these requirements into, into federal acquisition. But that's a guess. I actually don't have any special knowledge on this. And changes in the federal acquisition process can take, you know, uh, 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 um, can take some time. So, you know, your guess on that is as good as mine. You're going to have to be patient. And it's a virtue. Um, so and, what, I know it's uh, your, and I know patience is your strong suit. Exactly. Every startup has that long view, slow pace. It's That's what we do. Um what can my so you know MITRE is one of those interesting organizations, at least from an outside perspective, where you are really at that intersection of commercial and federal, and especially from a red team, you know, cybersecurity testing perspective, we actually had the opportunity to be tested by MITRE at an event last year, and I've recently heard about efforts to get a space equivalent of that going to help test solutions for space. Is that something that you're able to talk about? I'm not directly involved in that, but I will tell you this, that one of the things that MITRE has been doing and will continue to do is to develop reference architectures that take commercial technologies and show that they can be used for either specific industry verticals or cross-cutting solutions. Um, and I think that some of the work that we're doing in the space lab represents that kind of an issue, that kind of an effort. In addition, um, I think you are aware that NIST and and with with MITRE support, um, NIST has has developed a draft framework for space systems, you know, based on the NIST cybersecurity framework. 
So you are beginning to see, and perhaps even more than beginning to see, an emphasis on the security of space systems and on trying to provide an actual architectural approach as opposed to just saying, well, it's important that space systems be secure. Instead, you're beginning to see examples of reference architectures and attempts to map space system security controls to the cybersecurity framework. And I would expect that MITRE will continue to be involved in that work as well. You know, it's interesting. I ran into a couple of companies at Space Symposium recently where they we were just musing about space cyber and they brought up CMMC. And, I, and I'm familiar with CMMC. A, we're a small business in the defense industrial base, but also just we sell products to help companies satisfy parts of CMMC, but not in space. So they were asking, well, is the satellite part of what needs to be in the CMMC framework? Or are we just talking about corporate down on the planet? Um, I was, well, I, that's a good question. I think it's a great question. I'll give you my, my personal opinion on this. If, in fact, a company is using space systems for its corporate data, for its controlled on class and to process, to transmit controlled on classified information, then those space systems need to be part of the architecture that's subject to CMMC. Um, you know, whether or not that's actually going to happen, I don't know. But I would say the prevalence of space systems um, and the likelihood that these systems are going to be part of, of corporate systems uh, means that that I would see this as a likely as a likely development. Now, a lot of space systems are being, you know, you know, are being built for sort of low demand density environments, right, where you don't have uh, terrestrial carriers. But for example, in, in more rural areas or areas in this country where you don't have enough demand density for some of the terrestrial carriers, I think you're going to see more space systems um, in use. So particularly in those areas, I would say space systems, to the extent that they're part of the environment a company uses to, to transmit and process CUI, uh, or almost certainly should be subject to CMMC requirements, uh, you know, assuming the program continues to develop. Which I any any year now, you'll see, Sam. It, it'll be a program. You'll see. Uh, how many years has this been in the making for CMMC? Well, on the other hand, I think they have made progress, and you know, making a change in something as broad and deep as the defense industrial base is substantial. I mean, you have huge companies that are enormous systems integrators, um, mid-sized companies that are providing subsystems, and thousands of smaller companies that do everything from providing very specialized expertise to specialized manufacturing of, you know, of, of very high-spec parts. So, you know, it's, it's perhaps the most complex industrial base in the world. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, the fact that it's taking time, the fact that it's hard shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, the, the, the one thing that I think it requires is, is persistence and determination. Um, we can't just decide that this is too hard to do or that it's taking too long. You know, you're trying to secure the most complex, you know, interdependent industrial base uh, on the planet. This is simply going to be hard to do. You were recently uh, reelected to AFCIA's. Um, well, what were you? What was the? You were serving at AFCIA before, and you were recently reelected. Tell us more about that and your new uh, 
Cyberstat okay. Initiative. So there are several things at which we're looking. Uh, I'm on the AFCIA Cyber Committee. This is the Cyber Committee of the Armed Forces Communications and Electronics Association. And I've served for a number of years on this committee, and I I, uh, I had to stand down for a year when my term ended, and then I, I stood for re-election and was brought back. We have underway a number of projects. One of them is taking a look at uh, the question of a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. Um, and this actually bears on, on the work that a number of companies, including yours, will do indirectly, but in an important way. Um, as you may recall, Congress uh, constituted a, in, in recent years a solarium commission to uh, build out uh, parts of our national cyber strategy. One of the recommendations of that commission was the development of a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And one of the reasons for that, you know, the principal reason is that empirical information about cybersecurity has frankly just not been as good as it needs to be. And coming up with a way of accruing and analyzing information on an empirical basis that can be used by government CISOs and CISOs in industry to understand their risks, to quantify, and in some cases monetize their risk and figure out how to invest and what to invest in building their cybersecurity profiles is, is very important. Um, it's a way of, for example, I think of elevating the question of cybersecurity to the to the C-suite. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, I hired a CISO, I've delegated that responsibility. You might be able to do that, but accountability for its consequences in your business remains in the C-suite, right? You know, you might ask a CISO to put in place the controls, but if there's a successful attack or exploit against your company and it has a material result on your balance sheet, you as the CEO and your team, your CFO and others are accountable to to shareholders, you're accountable to employees, you're accountable to customers, and you may be accountable to uh, to government regulators, depending on the in, the industry in which you're in which you're functioning. So this is another way of of making sure that there's good information that can be used by the C-suite to understand the risk to their enterprise and understand how they should be investing to to mitigate that risk. This is one of the issues on which we're working. And there are a number of, of tough problems. You know, Should the accrual of these statistics be mandatory? If not, what's the best way to encourage their use, you know, their, their collection and by the private sector and, and giving them to a federal bureau of, of cyber statistics up for their analysis? And this is a project on which we've been working for the last few months. We have other projects upcoming, uh, including a look at uh, whether or not we think the nation's cybersecurity profile is adequate, given the current international geopolitical situation. I really can't say more about that right now. Um, but I would say that that um, right now, the, that in the interim, the question of cyber statistics and better cybersecurity data is a vital problem so that we can take this national debate about discussion about improving our cybersecurity both at the national level and at the level of individual enterprises in government and industry, and actually inform it with better data than we've had in the past. That's one of the big issues on which we're working. I'm also, by the way, a member of the Cyber Council at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We're working on a broad range of issues there, but that council, by the way, has endorsed the idea that space systems <clears throat> should be declared a sector of critical infrastructure, and they've published a white paper on the insaonline.org site, if anyone is interested in reading it. 
Any other topics we didn't touch on that you wanted to uh, discuss here? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the one last topic is one that with which we started, and I think, Dave, we can close with this, and that is we're undergoing a fundamental change in our global information technology infrastructure that's going to require new, better, more distributed, and more efficient cybersecurity solutions. You know, in the course of a human working lifetime, the, you know, I moved from the first technology on which I was formally trained, which was Morse code, to the use of an iPhone. From Morse code to an iPhone in the in the span of a, of a single career. Think about the change in the information technology environment that that, that that represents. The next change of that environment is emerging around us. Thousands of low-Earth orbiting satellites forming the backbone of global 5G networks, connected to global cloud networks, connected to smart cities with machine learning to habituate themselves to data and learn patterns and artificial intelligence to take the data from millions of eventually. or maybe even a billion IoT devices. We're talking about, you know, as many as a million IoT devices per square kilometer. And I think we're going to hit that number pretty soon. You know, how do we secure that? We're going to see a fundamental change in the infrastructures that we have. So that is the other issue that is sort of consuming me. And you can see the smart cities problem as a subset of an increasingly smart global IT infrastructure where AI mediates the use of resources. How we're going to secure that, I think, is the next great challenge and one in which I think Zero Trust will play a role. You know, this is not just academic for you or for me. And the topic you just brought up was this is playing out in real time. So you look at SDA's amazing work in terms of rapid deployment of satellites for tranche, you know, tier one, you know, tranche one layer transport and tracking right you're you're following that closely i am so you have you know the current players three different constellations of satellites and you see a different solicitation out for who's going to operate that kind of meta constellation or you know all things together whose responsibility is it to have secure comms you know storage and movement of data across these mixed interconnected networks that's going to be everyone wants to do the right thing but it's not obvious because you know the people bidding on o and i it's like well i assume they built that into the satellites right and the people building the satellites like listen security ends at the boundary of our constellation i don't know what those other folks are up to right 
So everyone's correct. It's not it's not a finger pointing in the sense of not wanting to own it. It's just a lack of clarity of like, how does one do end-to-end security in a I build this one thing world? That's not going to be a good, I don't have a perfectly good answer. I think this is a question that the system that the architects of those systems are going to have to answer, you know, as the procurement takes place. You know, on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, you know, you, you you have to, you know, there's some anxiety associated with taking this approach because these are intermixed systems in which you're going to have a, a diffuse responsibility. On the other hand, Dave, you know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I'm glad to see that the Space Development Agency is taking this somewhat more agile, rather greatly more agile and innovative approach. You know, one good thing about these systems is that they're so highly diverse and they have enough system diversity and redundance in them that it's pretty hard to bring them down. I mean, one of the things we're seeing with some of the commercial networks is that you can push a patch out to these modems very quickly, uh, which is not all that easy to do with older sort of hardwired systems. So what I guess I would say is that without answering your question directly, is some of the approaches that are being developed for securely highly distributed systems should be considered by the architects at SDA, and I'm hoping that that's what they'll do. I think they probably will. So when you're not, you know, solving all the world's problems on space cyber, what else are you doing? Um, well, I am, as I said, you know, looking at the issue of cybersecurity of complex interconnected systems. I've been working with the NextG Alliance on uh, how do we build an industrial strategy to ensure U.S. leadership for 6G, that's a big issue for me. Um, I think we need a national R&D strategy for 6G that includes, by the way, ways of making manufacturing of 6G gear uh, uh, more efficient so that we don't end up creating a 6G technology, the manufacturing and deployment of which gets outsourced to our to our competitors and adversaries. That's an issue on which uh, on which we're working. And then when I'm not thinking about that, as the world reopens, we're, we're hoping to do more travel. Uh, we've started to go to the symphony. We're starting to go back to live performances. And I'm looking forward to being able to do more of that as, uh, as life begins uh, slowly but surely to return to normal. And outside of work? Well, that is sort of outside of work. That and, uh, and playing with a new dog. That uh, is a is a is a is a major focus right now. We've adopted a four-year-old hound mix. Looks like a beagle foxhound, and uh, we're just smitten with her. And she's consuming a lot of our a lot of our attention. 